Pastor John, I'm glad to see we're wearing our pastor's uniform today. <laughs> so over breakfast, I learned that a lot of you know one of the pastors that I work with, Pastor Huey Lee. Raise your hand if you know Pastor Huey. Uh, okay. I, someone said it was half of you. You lied to me. It's like four of you. Okay. Well, for those of you who know Pastor Huey, let me just give you a brief update on, on him. They recently had their third child, Christian. Uh, he's doing great. Uh, Huey has uh, the three most adorable boys, and um, he oversees our education ministry, and under his leadership, our college ministry is, is, is flourishing, our, our children are growing, and I couldn't be more thankful for a gospel partner like Huey. So if you know Huey, I want to hear some Huey stories, okay, so I can go back and blackmail him with that. So uh, come talk to me and tell me your funniest or most embarrassing Huey stories uh, during this retreat. Well, um, again, uh, Pastor John mentioned that the theme of this retreat is wisdom, understanding the world through the lens of the gospel. And the goal of this retreat really is to look at some of the most basic, fundamental realities of life in this world through the lens of the gospel so that we might understand it appropriately and thus live wisely. And last night we talked about how grace changes our hearts. But today we're going to look at something that's just big, major, and upfront in everyone's life, and that's your work. So whether you're a student or you work outside the home, or you work inside the home, everyone has work that they're called to. And we want to look at our work, uh, look at our calling, our vocation, through the lens of the gospel so that we might not only view it properly, but engage it properly. Because that's, I think, at the heart of what biblical wisdom is, living wisely uh, in this world. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through, <clears throat> 5 through 9. And the title of today's sermon is The Gospel and Our Work. Now, again, for those of you who are students, just substitute your studies for work, okay? This applies to you as well, all right? This is the reading of God's word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is your, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we're going to talk about work and your relationship with your work and how you ought to view your work and how you ought to do your work. I want to say three things about work. First, the, the goodness of work. Second, the dangers of work. Third, the gospel and your work. So the, uh, the goodness of work, the dangers of work, and then lastly, the gospel and your work. All right, let's get started. All right, we're going to be honest again. I like it when we're honest. How many of you hate your jobs? Just honest. All right? <laughs> Liars. This church, Pastor John, we're just, they're not a very honest church here. No. Everyone loves their job? No. Then you don't need to hear the sermon. All right? Anyways, um, the truth is a lot of us hate our jobs, or there are seasons when we hate our jobs. There are t like, for example, Monday morning, you're not looking forward to going back into work on Monday morning, right? Basically, a lot of us, if we're honest, we view our jobs as a curse. Uh, your work is nothing more than a way to get a paycheck. 
You don't get any satisfaction from your work. You don't really care if your work helps others or not. As long as you get paid, that's all that matters, right? Because your work is a way to, to earn a living and to take care of your family. And a lot of us view work in that way. Now, if you view and approach your work in this way, then it only makes sense that you live for the weeknights and for the weekends, right? Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, life is a total grind, and you can't wait for the workday to end. You can't wait for Saturday to come. Uh, you live for the weekend. You live for your vacations because you think that's when real life, it's stuff that you really like, really happens. So you do everything you can but to, to minimize work and to maximize leisure, right? Because that's what you think will make you happy. So the functional purpose of your life is, let's be honest, to work as little as you can and to play as much as you can. Or if you're more spiritually minded, sometimes you may think to yourself, man, if only I didn't have to spend so much time at work, then I can spend more time at church and do really important stuff like ministry. But work gets in the way, and, and work is the reason why I can't do ministry, right? You think that way and you feel that way because uh, of the functional low view that we have of our work. Now, some of you may feel that you're overqualified for your work. Some of you may feel that your work is repetitive, boring, tedious, and unchallenging. Some of you can't see the good uh, or any difference that your work makes. You don't really value the goods or the services that your work provides. Or maybe you feel underpaid and overworked. Maybe you feel like you can't stand your boss or you can't stand your coworkers. Um, and you feel like maybe your job is going nowhere. You feel like you have a dead-end job. And, and so we view our work as a curse, as a necessary evil, as something that we have to do in order to make a living, to pay the bills, and to provide for the family. Again, if you, let me warn you, if you view work this way, this is what you're going to do. You're going to underwork whenever you can. You're going to cut corners wherever you can. And you're going to just do the bare minimum so you don't get fired. If you have this view of work, it will make you a very, um, put it this way, a, a very uh, challenging employee, <laughs> right? Someone that an employer is not looking forward to having you work for them. Again, as long as you get paid, that's all that matters. You see, the work itself doesn't matter. It's all about the pay that you get from the work, right? But the biblical view of work could not be more different, very different. According to the Bible, Work is not a curse, but a calling, okay? Work is not a curse, but a calling. According to verse 6 of our text, doing your work is the will of God for you. Don't let that just kind of roll over your head. Let, let's, let's camp there a little bit. Doing your work, whatever your work may be, that is God's will for you. Therefore, Paul says, you should do your work from your heart or with all of your heart. You see, the biblical vision for your work is not that you would simply endure your work, you know, just kind of endure it, but that you would engage your work with energy and enthusiasm and doing your work from a sincere heart. That's God's vision for how you ought to do your work, no matter what your work may be. Now, by the way, Paul, who was Paul writing to? He was writing to slaves here, right? So, now, I don't care how much you hate your work or how miserable you feel at your job or how menial and tedious your job may feel. It isn't as bad as being a slave, right? right? You may feel like a slave at, your, uh, at work, but you're not a slave. And if, and if Paul can actually exhort actual slaves to do their repetitious, menial, dead-end jobs for their masters with all of their hearts, 
then we really have no excuse for not doing whatever work that God has called us to, to do without, from our hearts, with the sincere heart, with all of our hearts, right? That is God's will. Now, some of you may be thinking, so does the Bible endorse slavery? Now, that's to kind of get off the topic here. Let me just, uh, for the sake of time, I, I, I can't unpack this, but no, the Bible does not endorse slavery, especially the kind of inhumane and cruel slavery that happened here in America. In fact, it was Christians who led the way to abolish slavery, right? And even to this day, it's Christians who are the most passionate about human rights and justice, right? It's, a, it's the Christians who are the most passionate about fighting human trafficking and injustice around the world. So the short answer is no, the Bible does not endorse slavery. Now, if you want to talk more about that, you can talk to Pastor John. That's why he's here. So, Pastor, the grenade is yours. Wherever you are, Pastor John, I'll let you pick up that mess. There he is. There's the man. So back to the issue of work. So a lot of people view work as a curse, as a necessary evil that has to be endured simply for the sake of making a living. But again, the biblical view of work is very different. The Bible says that all kinds of work, now let me spell this out, whether you work with your hands or your mind, whether you work in the home, in the office, or in the field, whether your work is simple or sophisticated, whether your work produces food, music, or art, whether your work pays poorly or pays well, whether your work provides a good, a service, or an experience, whether your work is considered white-collar work or blue-collared work, whether you work as you say, uh, flipping burgers or hooking up mergers. You guys know that song? Stephen Curtis Chapman? I'm, I'm dating myself again. He has a great song on work. <laughs> flipping burgers or hooking up mergers. Whatever you do, all kinds of work give evidence, listen, of your dignity as a human being who is created in the image of God. Why? Why does working evidence your dignity as an image bearer of God? It's because God is a God who works. And I can't, this is a really, really important point here. See, the Genesis account tells us that God himself worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, as creatures in the image of God, we're created to work. We were designed for work. Because God is a God who works, we imitate God when we work. And so when you work, you're giving evidence of your dignity as an image bearer of a of a God who works. You work because you reflect a God who works. Now, work is not the result of the fall. Work is not the punishment for sin. Work, if you think about it, was a part of paradise. Work was a part of God's perfect design for human life. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller, in his uh, excellent book on work called um, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work, says this. I want to read you a paragraph. The fact that God put work in paradise is startling to us because we so often think of work as a necessary evil or even punishment. Yet we do not see work brought into our human story after the fall of Adam as part of the resulting brokenness and curse. It is a part of the blessedness of the Garden of Eden. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine but food for the soul. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. You see, according to the Bible, we don't nearly need the money from our work. We need the work itself. We were created as much for work as we were for worship. Think about that. You were created not just to be worshiping creatures, but also working creatures. 
And not only does work have dignity, but all kinds of work have dignity. All kinds of work. And this is where I'm going to push you a little bit. So let me ask you, do you, like me, in your heart of hearts, despise manual labor? Like maybe gardening or collecting trash. Or do you, in your heart of hearts, look down on work that doesn't require a college education or maybe a graduate degree? We have to be careful because the very first man, Adam, was a gardener. And Jesus, the son of God, was a carpenter. Do you realize Jesus didn't go to college? He went to trade school. He made furniture, fixed furniture. You see, two of the most important men in human history both worked with their hands. They, were, they both had blue-collar jobs, okay? And so often, for those of us who are college-educated and for those of us who have white-collar jobs, we tend, in our hearts, to have a condescending attitude to those maybe that may have a blue-collar job. And I'm just being honest and just kind of uh, revealing the sin that, that goes on in my own heart. And I'm sure it's there in your heart as well. You see, in the eyes of the world, some work is overvalued and some work is undervalued. But in the eyes of God, all work has equal dignity, worth, and value to God, regardless of status or pay. Serving coffee is as much God's work as preaching a sermon. Fixing a car is as much God's work as brain surgery. And we were all built for work. We were all designed for work because work gives us dignity as human beings, again, regardless of status or pay. And if we understand that all human work is a calling from God, then we're going to do two things. We're not going to do two things. First, we're not going to overvalue and envy those people with white-collar jobs who seem to get all the pay and status. We're not going to do that. Nor are we going to undervalue or despise people who may not have well-paying jobs, uh, who have jobs that don't require a college education. The gospel will free us from both envy and despising. Do you see that? Because we're going to begin to see that um, we're going to begin to appreciate all kinds of work done by all kinds of people is God honoring and is giving human dignity. You see, God has given uh, the work. Again, it's not just out there, but the work that you're called to do. I want you to think about your job come Monday morning. Some of you love your job. Some of you hate your job. Some of you are ambivalent about your jobs. But the job that you have come Monday morning, that is God's calling for you. And God wants you to do whatever you, it is that you do from a heart, from your heart, with all of your heart. Because that gives dignity to your identity as an image bearer of God. Again, whether you're doing brain surgery, or you're driving a truck, or anything in between, it is God-honoring work. So work is a calling, not a curse. But at the same time, work is cursed. Because of sin, or work has been cursed, and the curse results in what uh, the Genesis account tells us is thorns and thistles growing up with our work. And that means that all work will be marked with frustration and a sense of unfulfillment. You see, no matter what your work may be, you will always envision doing far more than you can actually do. You will never be as good at your job as you wish you were. You will never be able to do your work as well as it could be done. And you will regularly experience setbacks, disappointments, and even failures in your work. And even if you love your job, even if you love what you, even if you love what you do, you can expect to experience failure and frustration even in that work that you love. You see, no matter what your job is, you're guaranteed to have those days 
where you will say with the author of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Why do I do what I, why do I do what I do? Does what I do make any difference at all? Why do I do this? No matter what your job is, you're going to have days when you feel that way. Now, some of you young people, now how many of you are, are young here? You, most of you are young. Young and single. Raise your hand. Young, single, and proud. Oh, man, you guys. Hey, you know, not proud, not proud. <laughs> young, single, and ashamed. Right? Right? All right. You know, what I see at our church, we have a growing number of what we call people in our bridges ministry. That's kind of your, uh, our young, working, professional, singles ministry. And I see people changing jobs almost like it seems like every four months they have a new job. They're bumping from job to job to job. Their constant prayer request is uh, to start a new job, to find a new job, whatever. It's always about looking for this new job. And as I read those prayer requests and as I talk to them, I'm, I'm thinking, man, you're in search of this perfect job. This job that you feel like will be totally fulfilling, something that you feel like will make a difference in the world. It's using your talents and your gifts, and you feel like, man, I'm going to have total job satisfaction. And what happens? They find that perfect job, and they realize four months into it, it's not perfect. And so they're bouncing around. And to those of you who are jumping from job to job, I just need to say this. You're not going to find that perfect job. That perfect job does not exist, just as that perfect spouse does not exist. It just doesn't. You see, any job, even your dream job, will have days when you're just so frustrated by it and you want to quit. You know, uh, so whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you own your own business or you own your own practice or you work for the government, you see, every patch has its thorns and thistles. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Believe it or not, but even pastoral ministry has its thorns and thistles. I can say to you, I have my dream job. I love what I do. I love being a pastor. But there are days when I want to just kind of beat my head against the wall and say, why do I do this? Does it make any difference at all? Right? Um, People forget the sermon three hours after it's been preached. Does it make any difference? All they remember are my mistakes. Right? And, 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 people, and people can be really hard to love at times, right? Uh, the very people you're trying to love and serve sometimes, they, they bite, the sheep bite. And, um, and sometimes you're like, yeah, I wish, you know, ministry would be so awesome if there weren't people in it. <laughs> if I didn't have to see people, I would love being a pastor, you know. <laughs> it, all that to say... Um, No matter what your job is, even if you get your dream job, there will be thorns and thistles. Every job. So this is the reality of work in a broken and fallen world. Because work is good, food will grow. But because work is cursed, thorns and thistles will also grow. And do you know what that means? That in your work, there will be both fulfillment and frustration. Both fulfillment and frustration and you cannot become discouraged or disillusioned when you experience thorn and thistle in your work right so stop daydreaming about finding that perfect job and stop daydreaming about finding that perfect spouse both don't exist in this world okay all right young people you're ready to live life in this world next let's talk about the dangers of work 
And God has designed us for a great capacity for work. In fact, God has designed us, if you think about it, with a greater capacity for work than for rest. Right? God didn't say, work one day and rest six. God didn't say, strike a balance, work three and a half days and rest three and a half days. God said, work six days and rest one day. We were designed to be workers. We were designed for work. And, but we were never meant to be defined by our work. And i got to say that again. We were designed for work, but we were never meant to be defined by our work. Write that down. You can tweet that. That's important. <laughs> work becomes dangerous, both physically and spiritually, when we begin to let work define us. Or in the categories of last night's sermon, when we let work become our idol. So if one error is to see work as a curse that you simply have to endure, the opposite error is to make curse your definition, uh, I mean to make work your definition, to make work your idol, or you engage it. Or in the categories of last night, when you begin to offer your body as a living sacrifice to your work, because you believe that your work will make you special, because you believe that your work will validate you. Right? And that's when it becomes very, very dangerous. So when you begin to look to your work to define you, when you begin to look to your work to give you your significance, your sense of validation, your sense of importance, that's when you will begin to overwork. You don't just love your work, you begin to need your work. You don't just serve your work, but you begin to be enslaved to your work. And that's when um, you're unable to stop working, you're, you're unable to rest, Basically, you become, the modern term is a workaholic. And without even realizing it, you sacrifice everything for your work. You sacrifice your body and your health for your work. And you even begin to sacrifice your relationships for your work, your marriage, or even your kids on the altar of work. And you begin to worship your work and you give everything to your work because you believe that your work can save you that your work can give you the identity that you need, that your work can give you the sense of uh, being special, that you really matter, that you're important. You see, we all look to something to save us, right, from a sense of uh, insignificance. And most of us look to our work to save us from that nagging inner sense of insignificance. We can't bear to be insignificant. So we have to do work that matters, and so we look to our work to save us from insignificance because our work, if it's important, if I do it well, it will make me significant and it will save me from insignificance. This is the reason why we're all tempted to put our careers first, ahead of everything, ahead of our health, ahead of our families, and even ahead of God. And I know you're just like me, I, and you're just like the people that I pastor. So many of you, you'll say, no, God, Pastor, I'm, I'm working hard for God. I'm working hard to provide for my family. But if you scratch a little bit deeper, they're not really doing it for God. They're not really doing it for their families. You know who they're doing it for? They're doing it for themselves. They're doing it because they need to prove something. They need to prove something either to themselves or to whoever's watching. They need to prove that what they do matters, that they matter. Because they believe that as long as their work matters, then they'll matter. And ultimately, uh, they work so hard. It's not for God's glory. It's not for the good of their families. It's really a desperate desire to save themselves from a sense of insignificance. To know that they matter, right? 
You know, uh, how many of you guys watched the movie Creed? The, the, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, all right, for those of you. How come nobody watches movies around here? Man, all my illustrations aren't going to work here. But anyways, Creed was a remake of a Rocky movie, right? And, and, and in, the, in this movie, uh, young Creed, Apollo's illegitimate son, I mean, he is working his butt off to be a boxer. I mean, he trains, he sacrifices, and he does everything. And in a key moment at the very end, when he finds it, when he says, why do you do what you do? He says, because I need to know that I'm not a mistake. I need to know that I'm not a bum. That was actually just kind of a revision of, of, a, of that awesome line in the first Rocky movie. But why do you, so why does he box? Why do you do what you do as hard as you do it? It's because you want to prove to yourself and to others that you're not a bum, that you're not a mistake, that you matter. We're hoping that our work will be our functional savior to save us from obscurity and insignificance. You know, that's why Hall of Fame athletes have the hardest time retiring from their sport and moving on, right? How many athletes have we seen retire and then unretire and then retire again and then unretire? You guys have heard of Brett Favre, right? You heard of that guy? And Michael Jordan. Why did he have such a hard time moving on from basketball? It's because he didn't just play basketball. He needed basketball. He, he wasn't just a man who played basketball. He was a basketball player. That was his core identity. That's what made him important. That's what made him matter. And do you know how I know that? If there was this uh, amazing uh, SI article on Michael Jordan. Do you know the code name that he gave himself when he was flying? Who read that article? Nobody? All right, I'm going to work with me here. All right. His code name for himself, I'm not, I'm not kidding, was Yahweh. When he was flying, Yahweh's in the air. Yahweh's landed. He dubbed himself Yahweh. Because we treated him like Yahweh on the basketball court. And he, he believed the press. And when your work or your sport allows you to have such a sense of significance that you can call yourself Yahweh and other people call you Yahweh. How can you walk away from that? You can't because it's his identity. It's what makes him significant. It's what makes him important. It's what makes him matter. And he couldn't give that up. And he, frankly, I don't think he still can give that up. He's still around the sport and he's still desperate to find his identity in basketball. You see, friends, our work is supposed to be the source of our dignity, not our definition, right? But when we make our work the source of our definition, then our work will enslave us. Work will become our master. Like the builders of the Tower of Babel, we will do everything in our power to make a name for ourselves, to construct an identity for ourselves, and that leads to disaster. So what's the difference here? Work as dignity and work as definition, okay? One is right, one is wrong, one is healthy, one is hurtful, right? Work as dignity is what we want. We don't want work as definition. So what is work as dignity? You see, if your work is your dignity and your calling, as it should be, then when it's taken away, should it be taken away from you, it will disappoint you, but it's not going to devastate you. It will hurt you, but it's not going to kill you, right? You'll be able to trust God uh, to provide for you and... When work is your dignity, not your definition, what does that enable you to do? It allows you to actually take a lesser-paying, lower-status job 
to trust God to provide. You see, when work is your definition, you can never stand a demotion. It has to be a lateral move or a promotion. You can never go down when work is your definition. But when work is your dignity, say, Lord, as long as I'm working, I'm doing it for you and for my neighbors, I can do whatever you call me to do. Whether it's a job that pays well or doesn't pay well, whether it's a job in the limelight or not, I can do work because it's my dignity, not my definition. But when work is your definition, which it shouldn't be, and when it's taken away from you, do you know how you respond? With panic and uncontrollable anger. You will do everything in your power to keep and protect your job. You'll sin if you have to. Because at the end of the day, keeping your job and keeping your identity is the most important thing to you. And you can't let it go. And if it's taken away, you're devastated. And some people even think about ending their lives. You see, when work is your definition, it will have a disastrous effect on you. See, what we talked about last night, right? It's the ramification of idolatry. It's the consequence of idolizing your work. It'll just turn you into a mess. So work can become dangerous when work becomes your definition, when it becomes your idol, when work becomes the source of your identity, the source of your significance and security, when you look to your work to save you from your inner sense of insignificance. Let's conclude now by considering how the gospel informs and transforms our view of work and how we ought to approach our work. So the gospel and our work. I've been alluding to this, but let me just say it. Uh, we, have all, we all have a, a, this deep and inconsolable need for a name, for an identity. We all need to know that we're significant. We all need to know that we matter, that we're special, uh, that the world is a better place because we're here, and that the world will miss us when we're gone. All of us have this need. We, we have this need for a name. And... Um, Tim Keller says this, and I think he says it great. He says, there is our work, and then there is the work under the work. And here's what he's getting at. He says, you have to view work on two levels. On the one hand, uh, you do work for a salary, right? But the deeper thing is you work also for significance. You don't just work for a salary. You work for significance. On the one hand, you are making a living, but on a deeper level, you're trying to make a name for yourself. So you're not just... Uh, working to make a living, you're working to make a name for yourself. And according to the Bible, you can get a name in one of two ways. The first way, or one way that you can make it, get a name is by making a name for yourself, right? And this is what I think New Yorkers are really good at. You work hard, your achievements, your accomplishments, your performance allows you to earn a name, right? When I grew up watching a show called Fame, you guys remember that show? Fame, I want to live forever. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> John, just you and I, just there's old people in the room, right? And, and and we want a claim. We want to make a name that other people will remember. Look what I did. Look what I've accomplished. Look where I went to school. Look at my job. Look what I've done. I make a name for myself. So that's one way to make a name for yourself. Or to get a name, which is by making a name for yourself. The other way, the gospel way of getting a name is not by making it, but by receiving it. Receiving it in the gospel based upon not your work, but on the work of Jesus on your behalf. You see, the first way of making a name for yourself 
is, um, or the first way of making a name for yourself is through your own work, and that's dangerous and enslaving. But the second way of receiving a name through the work of Jesus, that's salvation, that's freedom, that's joy. You see, the gospel says that Jesus has done the work that is underneath the work for you. That means that you no longer need your work to make you special because Jesus' work on your behalf, the life that he lived, the death that he died on the cross for you, he did that. Another way of saying that is to give you a name. You see, you don't need your work to make you significant anymore because because of what Jesus has done, you are significant in the eyes of God. And therefore, the work under the work has been done. You don't have to do the work under the work anymore. Jesus did it for you. You don't have to validate yourself anymore. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to prove to the world that you matter. You guys know that song, uh, My Fight Song? Okay. You know, prove that I'm all right song. You know, it's uh, everyone's trying to prove that they're all right. And you don't have to prove that you're all right anymore because you are all right in Christ. And therefore, you can just do the work on the top. You don't have to do the work underneath, right? The gospel says that Jesus did everything for you. Listen, because of what Jesus did for you, you need to hear this. And some of you have heard this a million times, but you've never believed it. Oftentimes, I tell this to my church. You know, um, you just need to believe what you know. You just need to believe what you already know. I know you've heard this. But maybe today, would you ask God that you might believe this? And that's this, that you matter. You matter to God. God can't imagine this world without you. God cannot imagine heaven without you. You now have a name. And do you know what your name is? Your name is beloved son of God. Your name is beloved daughter of God. That is your new identity. That is your new name. That is your now and forever unchanging name that will last for all eternity. Your name is not Jeff or Dan or Sarah or Sophia or Owen. Your most important name is son or daughter. And I love you. Through the work of Jesus, we have been adopted by God, the Father, into his family. And we now have all the affirmation we need, all the love and all the affirmation that we have been craving for our whole lives. We thought that we would get from people if we, if we did our jobs well. God gives us that affirmation and that affection, and it's enough. We don't need affirmation from our work anymore because we have it in the gospel. You see, the gospel gives you freedom from your work, but it also gives you freedom in your work. By giving you the name that truly matters, the gospel now frees you from doing your work in order to make a name for yourself. And the gospel now frees you to do your work the way it's supposed to be done. Not to make a name, but to love God and to love your neighbors through your vocation. So what does that mean? Let me uh, apply this and practically break it down. For those of you who teach, you are not a teacher You're a daughter of God who is loved by God, and you've been called by God now to love him and to love your neighbors by teaching well. Does that make sense? It's one thing to be a teacher identity and to be someone who teaches function. You are not a doctor. You are a son of God who is loved by God, 
And you are now called to love God and to love your neighbors by practicing medicine well. And should you ever not practice medicine, you don't lose your identity. You just get a change of vocation. You are not a a stay-at-home mom. That's not who you are. You are a beloved daughter of God who is called to love God and to love your children by managing your household well and taking care of the kids. That is not your identity. You are not a government worker. You're a beloved child of God who is now called to love God and to love your neighbors by doing your government job well. Do you understand that? Your job does not define you. Your job is now just your vocation through which now you can love God and love others. You can finally make your job not about you anymore and your need to prove yourself. You can make your job about others. You can make your job about God. You can make your job about the people that you're called to love and serve through your job. You see, the gospel frees us now to view our vocations in this way. Not as a means for an identity, but now as a means to love and people to serve God. Also, the gospel frees us again from two attitudes, right? The condescending attitude towards jobs that you think are, are lower status and lesser paying. It frees you from a condescending attitude, attitude, but also saves you from an envious attitude toward those who you think who have a better job than you, right? The gospel frees you from resenting the people who you think are above you and despising the people who are below you. The gospel evens the playing field and says all kinds of work done by all kinds of people have dignity. And we can now in the church, now I I get it, in the world, you're going to be put into classes. But in the church, which is the countercultural community, things are different. I love it that at our church, what's crazy is, We have a, at our church uh, someone who is a boss and someone that works for the boss, right? But we're on the verge of having the employee be one of the elders of the church who will shepherd his boss. Isn't that awesome? How crazy is that? That can only happen in the church. And it's going to require humility on both the employer and the employee's part to know that in the church the roles are different. That can happen because the gospel frees us. You see, um, it's crazy. Is also uh, my wife works at a Christian school, and the principal of the school, her boss, has begun uh, to come to our church, and he's a member of our church. And my wife says, "Oh my God, I can't believe my boss is at work," and it was so uncomfortable for her at first. But because of the gospel in the church, Dean—that's his name. Dean is not her boss, but he is first her brother in Christ. And there is a a dynamic that we can experience in the church because we believe the gospel together. You see, in the eyes of God, being a principal is not more important than being a teacher. Being an administrator is not more important than being a teacher. Both are important. And I think when both people get that, then they can begin to honor and respect one another and value one another's works. Okay, so what? Let uh, Let me conclude with this. What does it mean to do your work as a Christian? Okay, let me dispel what it does not mean. It does not mean that you put up a Bible verse in your cubicle. Okay? It does not mean that you try to share the gospel at the water cooler every time you get a chance. That's not what it means to do your work as a Christian. That's a way to identify yourself as a Christian. And some ways are better than others. But that, that is not what it means to do your work as a Christian. Okay? 
Do you realize you don't have to have any Bible verses up? You don't have to have any crosses up. You don't have to ever explicitly share the gospel for you to do your work as a Christian. So what does it mean to do your work as a Christian? So think about this. As you go back into work on Monday morning, you have to keep three things in mind for you to do your work as a Christian, for you to view your work through the lens of the gospel. First, believe that your work Whatever it is, whether it's to study at school or to work in the home or to work outside the home, whatever it is, that's God's calling for you in your life at this time. You're not there by accident. God has called you there. God has placed you there. It is God's will for you. So do your work from your heart with all of your heart, right? No matter what it is. Second, expect to experience both frustration and fulfillment in your work. Because your work is good, food will grow. Because your work is cursed, thorns and thistles will grow. Expect fulfillment and frustration in your place of work. Expect days when you're going to feel like quitting. Expect days when you're going to feel like your job isn't doing anything significant in the world. Expect days when things are just going to feel meaningless. And that will bolster you to not quit. Too many Christians quit, and that dishonors God. Stay with your job. Now, if God opens up new opportunities, I get it. God can transition you. But don't because the first time you, you feel frustrated, it's not the job that you thought it was, that you're on, you know, monster.com looking for a new job. That does not honor the Lord. Expect frustrations in your work. Third, do your work selflessly. Don't do your work for your reputation. Don't do your work for your identity. Do your work for others. Do your work as a way to love God, as a way to love people. Do your work in an other-centered way. That's what it means to do your work as a Christian. Right? See your work as a calling from God. Expect thorns and thistles and do it selflessly. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you do your work that way, I guarantee you that your employer will love employing you. You're the kind of coworker that every other coworker wants to be on the team with. You're the kind of employee that every employer wants to employ. You will be an asset to the company because you're not cutting corners. You're not cheating. You're not doing the bare minimum because you're doing your work with all of your heart. And you will make your workplace a better place. That's what it means to do your work as a Christian. Amen? All right, let's pray together.